Remember in Terminator 2, the T-1000? This impervious, relentless killing machine. A Terminator in the truest sense. That's what we've seen in The Last Dance with Michael Jordan as this ruthless NBA Terminator. He is unstoppable, which makes him terrifying. And yet the flip side of Terminator 2 is Arnold as a T-800 trying to learn how to smile and not kill and, you know, be human-ish. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I am not John or Sarah Connor. I am Sammy Yunan, your persistent podcasting machine. For this episode, I recently interviewed Ethan Sherwood Strauss, an Oakland-based NBA writer for The Athletic, about his book on the Warriors dynasty. This is my second Oakland NBA writer interview, having interviewed The Athletic's Marcus Thompson for his Kevin Durant book. Both of these writers consider the broader culture when they write. They see patterns and, and they see impacts. They're telling you an NBA story, but the NBA is just an analogy. Ethan's book is The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. All right, so you pick up this book thinking it's just about the NBA and the Warriors and Curry and KD, blah, blah, blah. Yet he writes in this book, most sports books are celebratory in nature. This one dwells on the sadness that comes with success. That's no longer an NBA story per se. That's something far more compelling honest. It's a damn good book. It helps if you're into the NBA, but even if you're not, it's worth the wrestle and trying to understand what success means for you, what success looks like for you. Since we're starting off in a contemplative mood, we may as well start with Shisha or 724 in San Francisco, a hookah lounge I highly recommend with the same passion as Ethan's book, The Victory Machine. Is it weird to be on this side of the mic, I guess, because you host a podcast? Uh, well, you stood over the course of uh, doing book promotion and all that. I mean, it's, either way, it's a conversation, you know, regardless of who hosts. Mm-hmm. I want to start off with a, um, uh, a specific scene in your book, The Victory Machine, the making and unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. And it's set in 724 a hookah bar, a shisha joint in San Francisco, which I've been to, actually. It's a really nice one. Oh, wow. I know you, like, you're setting the scene and you're talking about Kevin Durant and everything like that, but I want to ask up front, when you went to this uh, shisha joint, do you remember what flavor you ordered or <laughs> what's your go-to uh, hookah flavor? Just, I don't like mint. You know, as long as it's not mint, I'm pretty okay. And I know I'm different than a lot of people who really like mint flavoring, but for whatever reason... I'm a weirdo. I like uh, mint leaves in my in my soup, you know, mm-hmm. or in my salad. But that mint flavoring that you get in toothpaste or in, in candy, I just never like it. So I can't remember what the flavor was. I just know whatever it was, it's just no mint. You know, it might have been apple. Mm-hmm. It might have been strawberry. I can't remember. I would only remember if it had that menthol punch that I so despise. Yes. All right. Um... Part of that scene, of course, is like you were writing about the Warriors and about Kevin Durant. Uh, Both of you separately end up at this place, uh, 724. And one of the observations that you write about the moment is that many NBA stars are hookah heads, surprising as this may sound. They are up later than you and occasionally require more relaxing social activity. Those types of observations as well, like the way that you interact with the NBA and coming away with those type of observations, 
is that kind of like that's your jam, right? Like that's your mission statement or that's the kind of things that you're curious about and want to like convey back to the fans? Well, I don't know if it's what I'm specifically curious about, but I see my job as presenting the NBA to fans of it or aspects of it in a way that they wouldn't have known about. And so that's where I can provide some value. You know, I can't provide too much value telling you about a game that you already saw, but a lot of people are really interested in whatever's happening behind the scenes, what the culture of the sport is actually like, and that's where I can provide some value and say that, hey, you you wouldn't necessarily think it, but a lot of these players who depend on their lungs are smoking tons of hookah. Mm -hmm. And so that gives you an indication you know, I think that actually gives a profound indication in a way of how though these guys do work hard and keep themselves in a certain kind of shape, but they, they, they aren't religious about it in the way many people might assume of pro athletes. Yeah. So then continuing that thread then, right? With magicians, for example, right? They'll do a great trick and then a bunch of people will speculate or come up with some wacky theory on how they did that trick. And NBA superstars operate in the same way that they have kind of like a public face and then there's a lot that they don't reveal. You don't really kind of know, like the, like the hookah thing, for example. Yeah. Well, the hookah thing kind of undermines the idea that it's all an insane amount of hard work. And I'm sure there is a lot of hard work. Yeah. I'm sure the average NBA player works really hard. But it undermines this idea that it's a differentiating factor. Let's face it, some people are born with more gifts as basketball players than other people. Mm -hmm. And that might mean a whole lot more than the work ethic and, you know, extend that out to a lot of things where I probably couldn't be a nuclear physicist, uh, even if I worked my ass off to try to, to, try to be one. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, people are more scandalized when learning that about NBA players that, they drink a lot, they smoke a lot, and in the end, it doesn't seem to matter that much. Yeah, and so that's so then that's what I was getting at. So then, what's the what's the social contract, I guess, for lack of a better term, then in terms of you reporting, because you get to see a, a little bit more of as a sports writer and a sports journalist than say the average fan does, right? I just go to games and then I come home and take a nap because the hot dog was really big. So it's like, but you get to hang out or like run into them or talk to them a little bit more. You get to interact with them. So what is that social contract like? Because there is a tension. Like you can reveal like that Seth Curry likes popcorn or like that Kevin Durant or a number of other players like hookah. And that's an interesting tidbit, but it's not like earth shattering or like TMZ gossip. Whereas there are things that do happen that are like TMZ gossip. So what is that social contract like then? Difficult. Uh, usually if it's in the realm of sexual escapades, I think there's a strong taboo mm -hmm. against its inclusion. And you would need to really make the case that it was pertinent to some team dynamic. Like famously, the Tony Braxton being fought over by Jason Kidd and uh, is it Jimmy Jackson, I, I think, back yeah. in the day. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know if that's true. It's just one of those famous stories. You know, if that's pertinent to the team dynamics, then it, it should be mentioned. But I think when it gets into the realm of uh, anything in the sexual realm, mm -hmm. I mean, we know things as reporters that we just don't, we don't generally talk about. Like, a lot of times we know when guys have kids on the side or secret girlfriends, all that stuff, and it's just it's just really taboo. And I adhere to that taboo. I don't want to be too salacious. And again, if I can connect it back to 
the general story of the team, that's one thing. But that that seems to be a little that seems to be a little too personal. But if we're in the realm of when you talk about what I'm revealing, because um, I think that's some pushback from people of you know you shouldn't have you know you shouldn't have said this or that about uh, being at the hookah spot. And I'm thinking, well, excuse me, you know, am I not allowed to write about my own life? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's one thing if I'm it, it, it's one thing if I'm talking to people and uh, you know sharing some gossip, but you know that. This stuff happened to me. <laughs> yeah. I was there. You know, I'm not. I'm under no obligation to hide aspects of my own life to protect somebody else's reputation, and that's just how I see it. It's also connected because I mean, like, as, well, we'll get more into it as we talk. But like, you have a direct connection with Kevin Durant, <laughs> whether you decide that's a positive one or a negative one, right? Like, he knows who you are yeah. too. So. It's not like you're just like like me. Like I said, like I'm just an NBA fan. Uh, Kevin Durant doesn't know who I am. He'll never run into me. Like, um, and that's fine. But like, so if I if I run into him at that hookah joint, like seven two four, I'm like, yo, what's up? But like with you, it's like, hey, Ethan, like he knows who you are, such as it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, he knows me in reference to what I say about him. I mean, it's very thin. Mm-hmm. In a way, and insofar as he might not like me, it's because of what I write about him. So, you know, there are good relationships you can form with players, and it can get deeper than that. But a lot of the time, it's really heated. But I don't look at it as personal necessarily because it's all about what's happening on the surface level. It's not that I don't like how how you are as a father, you know, or he doesn't doesn't know, doesn't care to know. Why would he? It's it's more, I don't like that he's writing that about me when I don't want that written. I want to have control over it. And I understand why he feels that way. I, I, I get that. So when he got mad at me in the press conference, I wasn't mad at him. Mm-hmm. Um, it just made sense given the stuff that he wanted. But yeah, I, it, it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate. It's a very strange thing to navigate to write about people that you see all the time. In the, in the last dance, the the obviously the Jordan documentary that ESPN is currently running, in the third episode, Jordan uh, is in the locker room and uh, Pippen's on one side and Ahmad Rashad is on the other side, and Jordan's talking to a reporter off camera, and Jordan says to the reporter, "I really like what you wrote about me the other day. Like, it was an article that the art that the reporter had written, and Jordan said, "I appreciate it. Like, it said, quit worrying about what he's going to do and live for the present." And it's interesting because, like, it feels like um, that thread that, like, uh, when, like, Kevin Durant was going after you and stuff like that, that a lot of times people throw that kind of stuff with social media and stuff under the bus, but it's always been there. It's just that there's now more voices coming at NBA players with social media. But, like, clearly when Jordan was reading yeah. that stuff and, report, like, he knew who the reporter was. They didn't really show you in the in the documentary, but he knew who the reporter was and what he had written. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I, I think fans... They kind of look at it, it goes one of two ways, or they assume that these guys don't know who we are at all, mm-hmm. or they assume that these guys know us on a level far more than they actually do. And it's somewhere in between, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not like we're best friends, and it's not like they'd be unaware. If you're writing for a national outlet, you're writing about these guys, you've had a couple conversations, they, they know you, you know, mm-hmm. they know your name. And it is it is what it is. Um, Especially when you get a beat too, 
when you get yeah. beat, like you, you've been covering the Warriors for a while. Yeah. To what you're saying, though, the last chance is interesting to me because it shows, it just shows that a lot of this stuff has always been. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff that I feel is recent, it's always been there. I mean, my book is in, a, in many ways about how the technology is amplifying aspects of, of it beyond a level that's healthy. But there have always been aspects there, and there have always been uh, there's the media scrutiny that people resent within the team, and Sam Smith's The Jordan Rules becomes a thing, and there, there's always been the feeling of people in the dynasty that they're not getting enough credit that then makes the dynasty unstable. You know, for the Bulls, it seems to be Jerry Krause. For the Warriors, it seems to be Kevin Durant. And to my mind, when I watch that documentary, so far, my main reaction is there are far more, there's far more similarity than there is difference, even if it's completely different times in our culture. Yeah, and I find there's a lot more similarities as well with the Warriors and the Bulls and how they're handling things um, and dealing with things. The narrative threads are very similar. For the the Warriors, the current Warriors dynasty, the one that you wrote about in your book, and also the one that's in the documentary, The Last Dance with the Bulls, I'm finding that they're very similar mm-hmm narrative threads in like uh the way kevin durant is unhappy and then the way pippen was unhappy and i think the second episode um the the way that like uh rodman is kind of like wilding out and draymond green same thing emotional narrative like over and over like just like very similar threads between the two dynasties yeah and it's because there's a timeless aspect to wanting to win and echo across history and the actual rewards of winning having diminishing returns. And that's real. Pat Riley identified it, the disease of more, or the disease of me, I don't know which one. But you see it because that is that doesn't go away. It doesn't go away that winning a championship or winning multiple championships doesn't lead to happiness. I mean, that is just something that I guess we know now. Mm-hmm. And then all the pressure and all the strain that comes from trying to maintain the thing that didn't fulfill you. I mean, that's as true as it is, uh, that it, as it was then, as it is now. It's just something that is, that, that is part of sports. And yet, whichever teams actually do it and succeed in it and hold onto the rope for as long as they can are the ones who are going to talk about it and we're going to remember and we're going to do documentaries about it. I think it's the last page or the second last page of your book. You write that most sports books are celebratory in nature but this one dwells on the sadness that comes with success. And is like, is that partly one of the reasons yeah. why that Kevin Durant is like the only player uh, on the cover of your book on a, on a team called the Warriors? Yeah, I don't, I didn't make the decision for who should be on the cover, but I guess based on the early sales, it's, it was a good decision by the publisher. Mm-hmm. I just thought about it as maybe this book won't work or it won't connect because it's not striking the tone that sports books tend to strike, but to me it's real, and it's what I was really interested in. It's this paradox of how is there so much unhappiness at the height of success, and it was a way to look at where we are in our culture currently, and so I had no idea whether it was the right decision as far as marketing goes. I just know that I couldn't write a book I was disinterested in. And I figure if I'm interested in something, there's a good chance I can get somebody else interested in something. And that's just what I went with. But it wasn't so calculated. And I think from the publisher's perspective, Kevin Durant is the most interesting person in the book. So he made sense to put on the cover. But 
you know, there are a lot of Warriors fans who see that and they go, why is he on the cover? I mean, that's a question I get again and again. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of ambivalence towards him among Bay Area fans. And there's a sense of, well, Steph should be on the cover. Well, I mean, I think Steph would be on the cover if it was just completely about the dynasty and its rise. But a lot of it is about the Warriors' last dance. And who's the central figure of that? It ain't Steph Curry. Mm-hmm. So then the title then, Victory Machine then, uh, you've already alluded to some of this. Are you referring then obviously to the Warriors or to like how the NBA operates as a business machine? Because I think sometimes fans forget that it is a business machine uh, with Nike and agents and GM and all kinds of different influences coming at it uh, and kind of pushing and pulling in different directions. Well, I looked at it more as what Lakeup is trying to build, something that could just keep on going and keep on killing without being, uh, well, being impervious to the normal human frailties, which, of course, is impossible, but that's the vision. So I looked at it, I looked at it like that. So when you're writing as a sports writer, as a journalist, you're obviously a fan as well. So are you writing from two different perspectives? Or, like, if something happens, like Kevin Durant signs with the Warriors, are you seeing it from a journalist perspective or, like, as a fan perspective? Or how do you balance the two uh, points of view? I don't really think about it much, to be honest. I mean, I'm obviously a huge basketball fan, and I would rather be present for a great game than a not-so-great game. I mean, I, I enjoy basketball. I enjoy when the Warriors are good enough that the Bay Area is really into it, but I don't have the same emotional connection that I used to have. It's impossible. You know, I can't project things onto these guys. I know a lot of them as people, and... You know, they're mostly decent people, but they have their own flaws, and you just can't build them up as the uh, superheroes that you could when you were a kid, and you didn't know who they were. Uh, it's just a completely different thing. So I don't really have to balance fan versus non-fan anymore. I don't think that's something that I really deal with. I just more come at it from the perspective of what's interesting. I mean, that's 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 the perspective I don't really have. So then. As part of the media, then, I'm curious how you see how narratives are shaped. I mean, we kind of already touched upon the last dance. Yeah, from the way that Jordan the Bulls, during their dynasty, until now, has the way that narratives shaped, uh, been shaped, has it kind of evolved and become different? Or is it still always still just like how many championships or things like that that a player wins? Hmm. I, I need a little bit more specificity. Like, what, what narrative are you talking about? Um, and, like, when and, we... Yeah so, yeah, so, I mean, like, if we stay with the Bulls, for example, right? It was the whole narrative, like, they had to overcome the Pistons. Um, they had to, um, mm. like, Rodman kind of signing with them. Like, all those different things, like, coming together, as we've seen in the last dance, uh, kind of formed this Jordan uh, narrative uh, of how he was this great player and all the things that he had to overcome. And it's the same thing, like, I think with Kevin Durant, uh, the way you write about him, too, especially in the book and the way he's done interviews and stuff like that, is he doesn't feel like he gets the validation. He's not getting the recognition uh, for the work that he does. Yeah. And so he feels that his narrative is not, like, this great grand narrative where, like, he's considered one of the greatest or one of the best basketball players playing right now or of all time. And so I'm wondering how yeah. narrative gets shaped. It's a great question. Um I think narratives get shaped by what the public wants to be so. I think is a huge aspect of how a narrative gets shaped. You know, whatever stories tend to resonate. And in the case of the Warriors dynasty and Kevin Durant, I don't think the public wanted to recognize him as the best player because they didn't like what the decision had done to the league. 
And so maybe he could have shaped that particular narrative more advantageously, but it would have been an uphill battle. I mean, I think of ways one could do it. And I, I think that if he had maybe been a little bit more of a charismatic, a charismatic operator, he could have maybe shifted it in his direction. But the problem is that he cares so much and he wants the narrative to be so much something different that in a way the messaging falls apart and everybody can see to be so vulnerable, which is the last thing we want from our heroes. We want them to be completely invulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we like from Michael Jordan. So that kind of screws up the narrative shape. Yeah. So then is this kind of then feeding into what you were saying before of like, part of it is the dangers of technology and especially the things like social media, because it will amplify certain things. So uh, if Kevin Durant is petulant or upset or something, uh, or choose you out during a uh, press conference, these things get amplified in a larger way. Whereas in previous eras, uh, when there was no social media, no podcast and this whole other ecosystem at work, that might've just been a blip or might've gone away. Well, we know too much. We know way too much. Yeah. And, to Jordan's credit, he understood that we only need broad strokes. Jordan would talk about image and upholding the image. He got that people just need an image, just just a picture in their mind. You know, what do you need to know about Michael Jordan? Uh, he's a winner. Uh, he wins. Uh, drink Gatorade. There's really not a whole lot you left out the shoes. more there. I mean, there's an, yeah, great shoes, amazing <laughs> shoes. Yes. Um, you know, there's an arc to it about determination and being cut from his from his JV team and all that good stuff. But you didn't need to be constantly messaging to people in a way that social media seems to incentivize celebrities to constantly chase that attention mm-hmm. in the way that you see LeBron do, not just Kevin Durant. And so that, in a way, undermines your image in public because a lot of the fascination with Jordan well, the reason why we like to watch this Last Dance documentary is that there's still mystery there. We still don't totally know what makes him tick. And I think that's part of the modern condition is that the modern celebrity is being tripped into giving away too much and kind of corrupting their image for the public. Mystery's a good way to put it. Like, there's, um, yeah, like, it's almost, I guess when I, when I use the, the, um, analogy of like a magician that's it's like once you know the trick then it's like pretty boring right like then yeah. there's no magic yeah. anymore exactly exactly and that's a good that's a good metaphor i mean and you know for us maybe the trick is just knowing who you are and what you're driven by and maybe once we learn it it might not be the story we like we might not like knowing that what makes you so driven is that you've got some sort of imbalance in you and that's true of a lot of highly successful people. They're lopsided in a way. They don't have their priorities in order. That's how they were able to overcome so much relative to other people who maybe wanted to focus more on their family or who knows what. Yeah. Knowing all of that, I don't think is, is what people necessarily want. So do you think that that's also feeding into this current trend of NBA players forming media companies? Uh, Curry has one, Durant has one, LeBron has one. Uh, Matt Barnes, who's retired, yeah. has one. Like they're trying to control the narrative or the the magic a little bit, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, they're trying to control their own story. But the problem is, for a lot of athletes, they don't necessarily know what's interesting about themselves. You know, that's a skill to know what's interesting about you. Mm-hmm. Not so easy. 
you know, and especially if you're surrounded by people who think or tell you that everything you say is interesting. Um, you often see players fall into that trap where, you know, Kevin Durant is on TV talking about how he invested in postmates early. I don't think fans care about that at all. Mm-hmm. Why would they? Yeah. It's not something they can relate to at all. Yeah. So I think it's very tricky. And so they set up the Players' Tribune for these players to share stories where you're cutting out the middleman and you're not, some ha- you're not having some pestering media tell a story for you and make money off you. I understand, but here's the issue. And some of those stories on the Players' Tribune are really good, but a lot of them aren't. And they feel like PR, and the public can smell that, and they don't want that necessarily. They want something... They want something that at least feels non-contrived. That's mm-hmm. what they want. And a lot of the stuff they're interested in, a lot of the time, it's stuff that the players wouldn't want to tell them. You know, Michael Jordan seems very antsy about what this documentary might communicate to people about him and make people think he's a bad guy. But, you know, we, we want some of the stuff that Michael Jordan doesn't want us to know um, we're interested in it because, again, there's still some mystery around it. So we want to we want to know whatever we can. Like I found, like some of the issues I have with LeBron is some of the stuff feels telegraphed. He already's yes. kind of signaling what he's going to do, and like just signing with the Lakers, for example, is kind of very boring. It's not like a radical. It seems very contri- it seems very contrived, and maybe he'll win the championship with them. We won't care anymore. We'll go. Oh my god. What an amazing power move. But yeah, the whole LeBron and LeBron's pretty savvy, but he's almost maybe too clever by half, where it just seems it just seems like we're being worked in a way. Mm-hmm. And he seems also quite invested in his image and he's doing all these little videos and Taco Tuesday and here's me and my family dancing. And nobody would ever dare criticize him for it. Um, I think in part because he's such a prominent person that you wouldn't want him to close his door to you but there's this aspect of you know i don't i don't know this is actually this is actually great and i think a lot of people see this stuff and they go do you need the attention that much and we've got this ironic aspect to us where we don't necessarily want to give attention or respect to the people who want attention so yeah i didn't i don't want to get on digression about lebron because I guess, you know, he's done pretty well for himself, doesn't need my advice on anything, I suppose. But there's something to that, that LeBron isn't resonant with the public in the way Michael Jordan was. And I don't think it's just about the different eras technology. But if it's not the technology, is part of it also then, like, your ability to, I don't know how else to put it, like, detect bullshit, I guess? Like, you kind of see the old man a little bit behind mm-hmm. the wizard, whereas everyone's kind of dazzled by the wizard. Yes. Based yes. on the way that you write yeah, in the no book, words. you see, you see, you're like, yeah. I'm not buying this. Yeah. No, people can smell it. I mean, they've got a, they do have an authenticity detector. There's something like, something about the internet for all its faults, for all its ills. If you try to contrive something and make it go viral, it, it often doesn't. I mean, people can sense when you're trying to do it. And I think that, you know, I think you're right about that. I think you're right that they're, there's a little bit of a bullshit detector alarm that's going off. And, you know, when, when LeBron's telling his teammates that, you know, you, we're, we're brothers and you help your brother up after he you you falls down and everybody knows he's really trying to get them traded. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, <laughs> you know, all that stuff is, all that stuff is uh, sussed out these days. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to stay with Kevin Durant for a, a moment because I interviewed Marcus Thompson, fellow writer with you at The Athletic, uh, when he was here in the Toronto for the NBA Finals. He wrote a book called Kevin Durant, uh, Kevin Durant's Relentless Pursuit to be the Greatest. You mentioned Marcus mm. a couple of times in the book. Do you guys get to talk about Kevin Durant? And like, do you guys see each other? Like, do you both see him differently? Do you, are you on the same page? Or are you guys sort of like the, pardon the interruption, at like the athletic? I mean, we certainly talked about about Kevin. And I mean, I talk to Marcus nearly every day. It's just sort of, I mean, how much of that conversation is about Kevin Durant? I don't know. I don't think we've ever argued about him. I mean, I don't necessarily think, I think his book on KD has a lot of really interesting biographical details, but I don't think that it's necessarily in contradiction to anything I'm saying either. Mm-hmm. He does have a relentless pursuit to be the greatest. The issue for him is he also has a relentless pursuit to be perceived as the greatest. And, you know, that's that's part of it. That's part of what's driving him. And so what we might deem insecurities, we might also look at as fuel for this particular great athlete who has undeniably achieved a lot. I mean, I think there's some people who might have seen some excerpts and think that the book is like about hating Kevin Durant or trying to diminish his legacy or something like that. I don't really see it as that at all. I think that the book's appropriately, uh, you know, reverent for what he can do on a basketball court, but also isn't, isn't holding back as far as what he's like. And so, no, I, I haven't, I mean, maybe there could be a contradiction between those two books, but I, I don't know, I don't know where it would be. You ask a question in your book uh, about the Warriors, and I want to ask it to you. The question that you asked in the book was, were the Warriors lucky or were they good? And so mm-hmm. wh- where do you kind of stand now, having written this book and had these interviews and stuff like that, having seen the team for a number of years, were the Warriors lucky or were they good? Um, I think obviously it's both. You know, that's the case. I think to a certain degree, you make your own luck. I think, I would say more good than lucky, but it's such a lucky thing to have so many good people uh, (laughs) fall in line and create something incredible with one another. And so that part gets a little complicated because, you know, the warriors describe a lot of people who just happen to be in the same place at the same time. And, it's a confluence. It's a confluence. I mean, I'm trying to dispel the myth that they had this grand vision. I don't think they had this grand vision of how it all worked out. But I do think the fact that you had competent ownership and he made smart hiring decisions and that you already had this wellspring of talent that hadn't been actualized yet, it all came together. It was really a confluence that made this thing go. It's to circle back to the last dance. I mean, we're kind of seeing that lucky and that good kind of coming together with Jordan the Bulls. I mean, the fact that NBC in the early 90s uh, were able to hire John Tash randomly, and he made that whole song, Round Ball Rock, um, and just made that kind of NBA anthem just as Jordan was starting to win championships in 91. is like, that timing is, is impeccable. And now you're kind of like synonymous with this like anthem that makes everybody kind of get up and groove. Um, it's like you can't really organize it like unless it just kind of all falls into place. But at the same time, they were good. They were winning constantly. Yeah. Well, at the same time, we're talking about the NBA. NBC does a great job putting on sports, you know? So they kind of were in the right position to capture and amplify it to, to help the league versus ESPN ABC where, 
you know, I know a lot of people at ESPN, but a lot of talented people, but the TV side, a lot of it does seem contrived in a way. And I remember I recently rewatched some finals games and like obviously covered the 2016 finals. It was an epic finals. And a lot of the TV production is just corny and lame and Mm -hmm. weird. And, you know, you, you go to like game six, you know, Draymond had just been suspended in game five. Kyrie and LeBron go off for 41 each. And the introduction is just the roots and I like the roots, but not exactly a band that's going to like bring you sports, you know, mm. like it's great for an outdoor concert, but they're like singing about the number two, like, you know, two Cavs are two wins from a championship. Kyrie number two. And it's just, <laughs> what, yeah. what, what, what is it? Like, do you understand what this would be like if it was, NBA and NBC, yeah. and it was Marv Albert doing the intro after Kyrie and LeBron just staved off elimination going 41 apiece, and Draymond had been suspended, and now he's back, and Steph is injured, and go, like they would have the slow motion, and they would have the violins, <laughs> and then there would be, like, next, uh, the NBA on NBC, and then da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
uh, as we're getting closer to wrapping up, I want to pick up on that thread because, like you said, you were working for ESPN for a little while, and now you're working for The Athletic. And I'm not asking you to, like, bash or throw ESPN or anything under the bus, but I'm just curious, like, how is it experience uh, different working for The Athletic than it is for ESPN? Uh, because Athletic, obviously, you get to do a little bit more longer-form uh, coverage. Um, so is the approach to sports journalism kind of shifted between the two organizations? Uh, I The Athletic just fits me better. I I feel more comfortable being asked to write and to produce on that end, and I feel like there's a tangible metric for if you're doing well. You can see if people are reading you versus ad-supported on ESPN. And ESPN just, they're such a big company that they want you to push out your message in so many different avenues that you just end up feeling like you're spread thin. And so at a certain point, it just wasn't the best fit. And I don't have any bitterness or any resentment at all. I'm really happy to have worked at ESPN for the years that I did. But I also think that working at The Athletic, I I enjoy it a lot more. And I would be lying if I said otherwise. Yeah, if you sign up now, you get 90 days free, which is pretty cool. You get to check out a lot of writing. (laughs) Yeah, 90 90 days free. (laughs) Click on my articles, folks. 90 days free. free. Oh, and and leave nice Amazon reviews for the book. I got to do my plugs. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, What are you doing now? Uh, Like, what are you kind of focusing on now in the absence of actual games? Because we would be deep in the playoffs now. I think we'd be in the second round or so, wrapping up the second round right about now. I'm trying to focus on what the NBA is going to do in the future, the draft, for instance, mm-hmm. and maybe how they might change the shape of the league, how they just made this deal with Microsoft. I just wrote about that. But it's tough, man. It's tough. It's really tough to write about basketball in the absence of basketball. We made parallels uh, between the Warriors and the Bulls. The Bulls did have that two years off where the Rockets won back-to-back. Do you think that this is kind of like a uh, hesitation or like a pause on the Warriors' dynasty and then they can come back for a couple more? Uh, we could. Uh, I just don't think we'll ever – I mean, we, I say we as in like the whole experience publicly, not me. Mm-hmm. But they could, I should say. But I don't think they're ever going to be what they were. And Kerr even said it. I mean, they're not going to be the prohibitive favorite anytime soon. They might be able to sneak back in. But it's it's just going to be – it's it's going to be a different era, I think. How did basketball come into your life? My dad was a huge Knicks fan. Uh, I enjoyed watching the Knicks back in the day, NBA and NBC with them. We didn't have the greatest relationship, but it was a nice thing we could do together. And you know, I played basketball growing up. I might not look like it, but I did. <laughs> sort of, you know, white point guard who shoots threes, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, it was, it was always just a really nice, it was a really nice thing in my life. And I never thought I would end up doing this, but one thing led to another, and here we are. Mm-hmm. So the book is uh, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. I guess the last question, uh, the obvious question is, like, was there anything that kind of surprised you as you kind of sat down and kind of got d- deeper into the stories and the characters? Was there anything that surprised you or stood out to you? Uh, anything that surprised me when I was reading the book about the characters within it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or even about the Warriors, and, or as an, or Warriors as an organization. Hmm. I think just all the different opinions in the office. We say the Warriors, the Warriors, the Warriors, but it's not just one person with one idea. I mean, they're fighting over the ideas in basketball operations. And, you know, these are big battles for what's going to happen to the team. And so the book was a great opportunity to get into all of that. 
We covered a lot. We covered that you don't like mint for your hookah. We covered the winning has diminishing returns. <laughs> we covered the glorious 90s and that the Warriors didn't have a theme song like a round ball rock or a Helen Parsons project song. So we're good. Hey, we covered a lot. <laughs> these are all my favorite topics. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. It was great Thank interview. you, Ethan. My introduction for this episode began talking about Terminator 2, and so I'll go full circle. Towards the end of that movie, Arnold openly reveals, I know now why you cry, but it's something I can never do. Gets me every time. Gets me every time. It's difficult to grasp with both hands the idea that some NBA players struggle with happiness. Yet it's not that simple. In The Victory Machine, Ethan writes about NBA players. The media culture had just gotten more self-aware, probably because you were far more likely to hear and read negative things about yourself in the social media age. We knew we were nerds critiquing jocks. These are insights you don't often get in a traditional NBA book. And based on this My Summer Layer conversation, it's clear Ethan passionately thinks about these things. If you have a chance, check out the book. You'll dig it. Dude's a really smart writer who unfortunately is trapped in a broader cycle and system that could be and should be better in how we arrange coverage and the type of reporting we create. Now granted, he is benefiting from it, uh, as am I. I mean, when you go to visit a friend, he offers you a couch to crash on. It's not your back home bed, yet you make do. Sometimes due to status quo, that's all we can do. Not everyone can lead a revolution. Actually, one revolution worth checking out is The Athletic, a subscription-based sports website. Think of it like Netflix for sports. Lot of great writing, lot of great writers. And since you're on the internet anyways, why not follow me so I appear successful to strangers? I am my pal Sammy at Twitter, my pal Sammy at Facebook, and my pal Sammy at IG. Feel free to follow all three. Thank you so much for listening to me in a Netflix world. Well, I guess for this one, I should change it to thank you so much for listening to me in an ESPN world. The Warriors Dynasty, yo.